0: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor.
1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and speaking to you from New York City on this the 16th day of February 2021. And I do like to remind you that I publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks you can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com I also want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more uh, one of the more popular shows in the Voice America business channel and I do want to invite you to continue sending along any comments you have about this show positive or negative or neutral whatever you whatever's on your mind please feel free to send it along to us um, at questions for taylor at gmail.com questions is number 4 Taylor at gmail.com and we do want to thank our sponsors and we have some very exciting ones that's for sure Um, these are companies that make this show economically viable they are SK Mining Corp, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Alloral Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Fury Gold Mines, Great Bear Resources and Lion One Metals. Regarding our sponsors, today is a huge day for Novo Resources, which has now entered gold production and poured its first gold bar. In this news release that came out this morning, Dr. Quentin Henning, the chairman of the company, said the following, and I quote, This first gold pour marks over 10 years of dedicated commitment from Novo's team and its shareholders to advance towards conglomerate gold production. When Novo entered the Pilbara region looking for gold in ancient conglomerates, it was on the basis that it had potential to host deposits similar age and geology to those of the kapvaal craton of south africa host to the witwatersrand basin the single largest gold deposit on earth we found that we found that conglomerates of the pilbara are quite nuggety making them particularly difficult to explore and determine grade for purpose of resource modeling nonetheless through ingenuity perseverance and dedication, our team has overcome these challenges to reach this historic inaugural conglomerate gold poor milestone. And this is just the beginning. With approximately 14,000 square kilometers of tenure, Noble has laid a substantial foundation upon which it plans to unlock much more conglomerate gold over coming years. End of quote. Well, next week, Dr. Henning will be with me not only to talk about Novo as an emerging producer, but as a company that has a vision of becoming a very sizable, low-cost gold producer in Western Australia, which is, by the way, one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. Also next week, Bob Moriarty of 321 Gold fame will be with me to talk about a book he has written about the amazing story of Novo Resources and its founder, Dr. Quentin Henning. The title of the book is, What Became of the Crow? Now I have read this book cover to cover, and having lived with the developments of Dr. Henning's crazy, out-of-the-box theory about why Western Australia may host the largest gold discovery since the Great Whitwater Strand was discovered, it now seems clear to those of us who have followed this story closely over the years that Dr. Henning's vision now is very close now to becoming a reality. By the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the great Rand deposit, approximately 40% of all the gold ever mined on Earth has come from there. Noble has not only locked up an amazingly large land position, as you just heard Dr. Henning say 14,000 square kilometers, but with Dr. Henning at the helm, he has learned to use cutting-edge technologies to help the company mine gold in Western Australia that has long been recognized as being there but due to climate conditions including a lack of water in that desert land could never be mined profitably until now we I'm quite certain that it will be mined profitably of course it uh, that remains to be seen but that is my confidence next week this show will be devoted almost exclusively to novel resources which I think may be one of the on to one of the greatest gold stories to be told and uh, as you know, and as I've just said, I'm very optimistic about the company's future. For the sake of full disclosure, I should tell you that it is my largest holding in my modestly sized retirement account. Meantime, COVID-19, with COVID-19, Dr. Henning, who had been living uh, about a third of his life in the, air bla- in, uh, in the air, in airplanes going from one continent to the next, has been working out of his home in Colorado, having time to spend with his family and grandchildren. That's something that I know he's really has come to enjoy and missed in uh, prior years. Now he has been amazingly productive even from his home there in Colorado. In fact I think he believes he's been more productive than normal. He's been applying many years of his experience and unique intellectual talents to help company after company unlock the mineral potential of their land holdings. And several of those stories are now being told on this radio show, and people who have been following them have been doing exceptionally well. For example, as I look at my portfolio this morning, I'm seeing El Oral resources gaining over 9%. Dr. Henning introduced this story to you on this show on the first day of this year, the first show of this year, I should say, in 2021. It has uh, The company has a project in Bolivia that is apparently on to what seems to have the potential to become one of the largest silver uh, polymetallic discovery in years. Then there is SK Mining Corp that Dr. Henning is also very much involved with and he's talked about on this show. When he became involved as an advisor to SK Mining, he brought in with him two, very, two of the top VMS experts in the world. It seems quite likely now, based on a number of drill results, that SK Mining is on to another SK Creek type of deposit That Now, S.K. Creek is located just a few kilometers to the north of the company's current, of uh, S.K. Mining's current uh, target. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with S.K. Creek, it was one of the most prolific gold and silver deposits in Canadian mining history. Based on very early success, it does seem like S.K. Creek, or that S.K. Mining has a good shot at an extraordinary discovery, and Dr. Henning has just recently talked about that uh, on this show. Other sponsors in this show that have had the benefit of Dr. Henning's involvement, uh, companies like Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, and Lion One, are all having huge levels of success as well. Uh, and uh, Dr. Henning will be on this show uh, to talk about all of those companies in the near future. Now, I should mention that I have been begun doing video interviews with Dr. Henning that you can view on my YouTube channel at J. Taylor Media. At present, there is one there with SK Mining, as well as a new company that I've recently added to my newsletter called Goliath Resources. The dominance of Dr. Henning-related companies as sponsors of this show is not to say that there are not some other great stories headed by other very talented miners. Chris Taylor of Great Bear is a very young and successful exploration geologist. He'll be on with me sometime in the near future to give us an update on Great Bear. And uh, Michael Timmons of Fury Gold and Corwin Coe of Sitco, will also be joining me in the near future. Of course, Dr. Henning and all of us who are involved in the gold and silver exploration sector do have the wind at our backs now, given the dire financial conditions that governments around the world find themselves in, thanks to the irresponsible monetary policies that they have engaged in over over many, uh, gener- over many I should say many decades, at least since uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, introduced his, I think, very injurious theories of, of uh, economics, it's not that gold and silver are gaining value. We should remind you that we have. It's not that's not why we're having the bull market of a lifetime. Gold and silver remain the same, uh, for generation after generation. The real cause of the rising gold prices is not that gold and silver are rising, but that the that the currencies are being degenerated, or are really being debased and destroyed through endless amounts of printing. Um, and that is why throughout history, all fiat currencies, all currencies that are mandated by law that you use for your transactions, they've all ended up in the dustbin of history. And the dollar will be no, uh, will be no exception to that. The dollar and all the fiat currencies are now very rapidly, as Alistair McLeod likes to remind us on this show, heading towards that dustbin of history. And that brings me to the topic of today, which is very much related to gold and silver and the things I've just mentioned. Um, The title of my show today is Could Rising Rates Pop the Equity Bubble? Lynn Alden and Michael Oliver return as guests. Michael Timmons of Fury Gold Mines was scheduled to be with me today, but he postponed uh, today, preferring to come on at a later date when he expects to have some significant news to pass along to you. Speaking of Michael Oliver, even though he has been bearish on U.S. Treasuries longer term, his analysis has persistently convinced him it is not yet time to pull the plug on the U.S. uh, Treasury bonds. However, his work has also persistently pointed to a rise in commodity prices and long-term dollar uh, and a long-term decline of the dollar. He awaits his momentum and structural analysis to dictate Treasury plug-pulling time. Michael has suspected that rising levels of inflation will trigger a rate rise, explosion that leads to the Fed's loss of control of rates, which in turn will trigger stock market carnage. Today, Michael will be with me right after our our break that's coming up just momentarily, and I'm hoping to find out if that is still his line of thought, and if so, are we in the progression of rising inflation leading to rising rates beyond Uh, the Fed's control. In the second half of today's show, as I noted, Lynn Alden will be with me to talk about a recent piece that she wrote that deals with the impact of rising rates on equity markets. And I want to ask her if she can perceive of any market dynamics that could, in fact, cause the central banks around the world to lose control of interest rates. Yeah, well, we do have to go to break now, to our first commercial break, but uh, as I noted, Michael Oliver will be right back with me, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: Fury Gold Mines is a Canadian exploration and development company committed to aggressively growing its scalable, high grade gold assets across its 3.5 million ounce portfolio. Led by a management team of proven explorers and developers, Fury aims to generate major catalysts and performance per share by advancing exploration campaigns across Canada. Fury is well-positioned to create value for investors with low-risk development growth and the potential for a new major discovery. Fury Gold Mines trades on the TSX and NYSE American under Fury. To learn more, go to FuryGoldMines.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times, and I'm really pleased to have Michael Oliver with me, and I know uh, you Michael Oliver fans out there are going to be pleased that Michael is with me for this entire segment again. Uh, a lot of you have uh, have voiced pleasure in that. The last time we had Michael on, you kind of don't want to hear what I have to say. You want to hear what Michael has to say, and that's understandable. That's why I have these great guests on. Michael is certainly one of the, one of the greatest and one of the most appreciated that we have on a regular basis. So thank you for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to have you with me, and i uh, I want to start out by asking you, um, I don't know if you heard part of my monologue, but here's the way I sort of see your view of the markets. You believe that commodities are on commodity prices, the stuff um, are on the rise, that that will likely trigger inflation, which in turn will put pressure on the bond markets, causing interest rates to rise. And ultimately, as interest rates rise, it's going to have some adverse effect on equities. Do I have that right? Yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, the so how are you is seeing the near this term. now? And where where <laughs> do we stand now? Because I know you've been bearish long term on T-bonds, but in the near term, you've not been bearish and rightfully so. Uh, you've kind of figured that you know it's going to be money coming in and out of the equity markets. So when There's some downward pressure on equities It goes into into bonds, Mm -hmm. but ultimately you felt that that would not be the case, that we would see a real honest-to-goodness bear market in the treasuries again. So where do we stand right now in your view?
2: Well, right now, it's possible you saw the high in price, the low in yield in T-bonds and T-notes. T-bonds are 30 years, T-notes are 10, okay? They both have futures contracts. Uh, Usually, when the investors talk long-term, they they talk in notes, uh, 10-year. The German bonds, for example, are 10-year. The JGBs, Japanese government bonds, are 10-year. So that's usually the maturity that investors are looking at when they talk about long-term debt. There is a 30-year T-bond future, of course. It's been around a long time. So it's even longer term. So there's a bit of difference between the two. But basically... Uh, right now, for example, if you if you punch up on your quote screen, a chart going back at least to two thousand eleven twelve on T note futures, you'll mm-hmm. see that there was a major high, meaning a low in yields, that pushed prices of T note futures up to just above one hundred mm-hmm. and thirty five. Then there was a big drop, and then in two thousand. Sixteen. there was another big rise or drop in yields, rise in price, where T-notes reached over 134, not far Mm -hmm. from the high that had occurred in 2012, at Mm -hmm. just above 135. Where are we right now? We're in the high 135s. Mm. So we've had a drop, a fairly consistent, not a collapse, arm wrestling drop for the last one, two, three, four, five, six months or so, and everybody's now, I think there's, I'm not a contrarian, but if I were, I think right now you would have a consensus that, oh, rates are going to rise and we've got to be on that train. Short the notes, short the bonds, expecting mm-hmm. higher yields. Uh, yes, it's happening, but when you look at a price chart of the T-notes, all they've done is gently give back a small portion of a massive up move and T-note mm-hmm. prices that occurred from below in 2018 that took them from 118 up to 140 plus. Mm-hmm. And it's taken you six months to give back about five or six points of that <laughs> entire move, which is yeah. is to say something, you know, the clock has been working for the bears, but they haven't gained much ground really. Right. And we're mm-hmm. sitting on top of the prior two highs. My, assessment of bonds and notes is that right now if you get short here watch out there could be especially be watching the stock market because i think what's really driving the interest rate markets now is not so much the expectation of inflation therefore rising rates which i think you're going to have sooner or later Mm -hmm. but is an alternative to the stock market just Mm -hmm. like it was early last year when there was a panic to buy bonds and notes and a panic to buy gold while the stock market was collapsing. Yeah. The stock market looks vulnerable right now. Uh, we particularly watch NASDAQ 100 and the three top stocks within it. That's Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. And they are not doing much. They're not beating their chest anymore. They haven't for quite a while, those three stocks. So I think the leadership is, is trying to top out here while there's a fever in the stock market. And therefore, you've not had much demand for the notes and bonds. But I think if the stock market starts to peak here, and I suspect it's trying to, watch out for a quick snapback in price, drop in yields, in T-bonds and T-notes. And that might be coincident with a sharp upturn in gold. Mm -hmm. Because gold has behaved just like T-bonds and notes over the last six months. It's been an arm-wrestling drift to the downside. And I suspect if, if the stock market peaks here, it heads down some. You're going to turn the bonds and notes up and gold as well. Now, ultimately, you get down further in a year, I think the issue of the inflation that we're going to see, particularly in commodity prices, is going to actually be negative for the bonds and the notes. But right now, I suspect there's one more flight to safety rally left in that market.
1: Well, that could uh, would certainly seem to be the case as long as confidence is uh, it remains in the system. I would suggest that if we start to see significant interest rate or uh, significant commo- inflation, commodity inflation, I don't talk about inflation. We've had inflation and massive amounts yeah. of it. I would argue in the uh, financial markets, but what we're talking about, and you know, they don't count that inflation in the CPI. Yeah. They count. Uh, they count things with you know commodity prices, oil and you know, what it costs, to housing and that sort of, the rents and that sort of thing. When those things start to go through, if they start to rise dramatically, and do you see some potential for that? I mean, oh, oil yes. is up a lot. Yeah,
2: and a lot of people who are not gold bugs, uh, Ray Dalio, for example, one of the world's most famous hedge fund managers, has for months now said, watch out for the paradigm shift. Uh, and he says people looking at their stocks and looking at the price of their stocks based on dollars uh, are deluding themselves. The uh, What's happening to the dollar, not just relative to other currencies, but in terms of quantity of currency around, is so dramatic and historic that you can't trust that ruler as a yardstick anymore in terms of measuring the value of anything, hardly, mm-hmm. because it, it's uh, the quantity is exploding. And so, in effect, we've got hyper-monetary inflation, which is going to start to show itself in various asset categories. If the stock market were at a bear market low right now, it might help the stock market. But the stock market's been in a dramatic rise for 10, 11 years, and so that's not true with stocks anymore. They're no longer a bargain like they were in 2009. Instead, commodities are the bargain, and I think guys like Ray Dalio know this, realize this, and are shifting their investment preferences accordingly, and I think that's a subtle background that's going on in the markets that not too many people are focused on.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, certainly Dalio is, and, and he is also, I, I guess you can't call him a gold bug, but boy, he certainly does understand that gold is money and that you need to right. have it long-term to preserve purchasing power. He, he, he gets that, that's for sure. Yeah, but it and seems even, to be, uh,
2: my J.P. Morgan the other day, their research department came out and said they expect a super commodity cycle over the coming yeah, years. I Not saw Not just that. the next yeah. few months, coming years. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to take that and put it into perspective when you look at your portfolio and say, where am I positioned? Because I think it's just begun. And at some point, we're going to see when the stock market wobbles, that's when you're going to have more investor focus on those alternatives that are coming up from from effectively zero price levels. You know, uh, farmland prices, uh, grain prices, sugar, uh, meats, they're all turning up at once. And it's because they're turning up from historically very low levels, especially in real dollar terms. And yeah. I think that's going to cause a shift. Now, ultimately, that's going to hurt the bonds. But right now, mm-hmm. I still think the bonds and the notes will be, one more time, mm-hmm. uh, at some point here, a flight-to-safety vehicle for investors.
1: Yeah, it, um, it, it seems to be the natural thing, again, until um, that paradigm shift that Dalio talks about. If we start to see... I mean, if you start to see inflation starting to rise dramatically, the Fed, what's the Fed going to do? The United States <laughs> is running the stock these huge... Weak. <laughs> huh?
2: <laughs> what's that? Especially if the stock market's weak. How can they possibly want to raise rates uh, against inflation if it's going to hurt their stock market?
1: <laughs> well, that <laughs> so leads me to a <laughs> that, that leads me to a question, Michael, in terms of the Fed's... Omnipotent, uh, 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 yeah, omnipotence. Can, can it raise rates indefinitely? I mean, can it? Does it have control of rates? Is what I'm getting at. I know you're Probably a believer not. in the markets. You're a in the power of the markets. Ultimately, the right. politicians can play games. Central bankers can manipulate markets to a certain extent, but ultimately, ultimately, you know, it's it's the rules of nature, the laws of nature that come into play, right?
2: I, uh, correct, and I, I think that uh, ultimately those are reflected through individual actions, investor mm-hmm. actions, uh, investors collectively put together in a fund, for example. I mean, finally, that can change. And uh, I think it. they've put us in a position now, the central banks of the Western world in particular, where pricing of certain assets is way out of line with reality. It's been way out of line for a long time, and therefore, when it snaps, it's likely to the repercut are likely to be equal and opposite the other way in terms of excess. Uh, and I think the U.S. stock market in particular is uh, an asset category that a lot of people think, well, the Fed's in charge and it's going to take it up forever. Well, there's a point at which that rubber band snaps and the money flows yeah. go elsewhere. It happened yeah. in the late 70s. Stock
3: market, mm-hmm. Yeah, was for sure. For, yeah,
1: you know, absolutely. I remember it well. I'm old enough to remember it well. And I'm, and I'm wondering if we're not going to see perhaps the same kind of stagflation event that we saw then. where Even worse. But of course, yeah. <laughs> even worse. But now the problem is you can't raise rates to 17% like Volcker did. You know, you're, nope. It's game over then if that happens, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, got to well, be a, some mean, sort of a currency reset.
2: Right. And uh, it's, a, it's a crisis of crises, I think. And I think ultimately when this one's over, a lot of things will be reset in such a drastic and fundamental way that reality will have changed uh, for most investors, most policymakers, etc., and uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, we're back to reality again, and I think it's coming. And I think yeah. the explosion we're seeing in commodities is the beginning phase of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The reality will be forced on the politicians. Uh, just because you want something doesn't make it so. And uh, anyway, uh, I just with a couple of minutes left here yet, Michael, want to ask you about gold. Where do you see it now, technically, from your momentum and structural well, analysis? W- w-
2: there's no way we can be bearish. Step one, no. long term. Okay, uh, we've noted that in the past, whatever gold took out a prior major bull market peak. For instance, it peaked at 200 in 1975. Well, in 1978, it came back up and took out that high. If you bought gold taking out the old 1975 price high, uh, in effect, you were a sucker. You should have bought it before then. And what did they do for about uh, two or three quarters gold flip flopped around before it fully engaged to the upside again? Uh, The same thing happened in uh, 1980. You made a peak at 850, 875. uh, And then later, a couple decades later, you took that out. But what happened once you took it out? You went a little bit further, but then you thrashed around for several quarters. Before you finally engage big time to the upside in gold, it got to 1900. Same story now. We took out the 1900 high, or the there was a monthly high in 2011, about 1830, I think it was. We've taken that out last summer, and what have we done since? Flip-flopped the with a slight downside bias. Uh, just mm-hmm. like T-bonds have done, by the way, uh, a downside bias for the last six months. Uh, but it's not precipitous. It's it's, it's arm-wrestling-type selling. It's redundant. You, you sell off, make a new low for the sell-off. You rally, then you come back down. The issue now on gold is, will you take out the November low, which was 1760 and change, or is this a teaser sell-off that is going to try to, but if it doesn't take it out very soon on the downside – And Mm -hmm. I think this thing could flip back up. And our key numbers are in the mid-1800s, like Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm 1850-plus. At that point, we think the arm wrestling match of the last six, seven months is over, upside resuming. Watch silver also. It wants to launch. But it's not going to do it until gold says, okay, I'm through with the arm wrestling match. I'm ready to go back up. As soon as silver senses that gold is through with the corrective process, I think silver is going to be a lightning bolt.
3: It is mm-hmm. a better place
1: to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's silver for sure. Um, I'm hearing horror stories about shortages, physical shortages, not just for coins, silver coins, but for 1,000-ounce bars and so yes. forth. Right. And now I'm just reading uh, just a note from my wife here talking about the silver. She says the silver exchange-traded uh, funded SLV appears to have just amended its prospectus to acknowledge difficulty in sourcing metal for the fund, end of quote. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think that well, uh, the politicians... down a
2: percent and a half today and silver's up a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, but it's you know, like silver it, saying, it,
2: you know, is, get, your, we, get your act over with, I'm ready to go. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, well, you know, Michael, uh, we ask the, uh, are we, this, the, uh, the big banks, they play the futures markets, they're in the paper markets, massive amounts of paper, they sell down these metals. Um, I asked this last week, I asked a, a coin dealer, a dealer that I have high regard for, what he thought, what silver price he thought it would take to clear the market so he doesn't have to wait two weeks or two months to get a delivery of, of silver. He said he thinks if we saw $50 silver, we'd see some pride loose. We'd see Ooh, some yeah. silver <laughs> pride. He said that whatever the markets get slammed, people are not selling their physical. They're not selling their physical. They're buying more. So I'd say yeah. it's really a fascinating uh, time, I think, for the metals. And boy, if there was ever a time in, in my career that I think we've had wind at our backs as precious metals investors. I think it's now. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree.
2: The only issue is can they take out that November low and get some kind of further panic sell-off in gold briefly? And I think it will be brief. Uh, or is this the last attempt that we're seeing right now? And if it fails very soon, I think within days, if you're not through that November low, I think they could flip it back up pretty good. And if you get back up into the mid-1800s, which is the highs of the last three or four or five weeks have been 1850s uh, area, so forth. I think you get back up there one more time, they're going to launch it. But I, again, gold is the mama, but it's not necessarily the place to be. I think silver's the place to be. All right.
1: Yeah, it sure, sure seems that way. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us again, sharing your thoughts. Very valuable. Uh, always great to have you here with us, and we'll look to do it again in a couple of weeks from now, I hope. Good. All right. Thank you, Jay. All right, you bet. Uh, Folks, we're going to break now, but don't go away. Lynn Alden will be with me. Um, She's going to talk about interest rates' effects on equities and uh, some of her thoughts about the markets as well. So uh, we'll be right back with Lynn Alden.
4: Voice America is available on your Google-connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast
3: on iHeartRadio.
4: Try it today.
3: Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSXV and GTBAF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their district-scale Dixie project in the renowned Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having made multiple high-grade near-surface gold discoveries, GBR's capital efficiency has allowed them to be fully funded to complete a very active 300,000-meter drill program through 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last three years by visiting greatbearresources.ca.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: Welcome back to Any Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Lynn Alden. And Lynn applies her background as an engineer to finance, which I think is really very valuable uh, a very valuable discipline to apply uh, to economics and finance. I say that because markets do, in fact, have limits. Uh, it is uh, particularly fashionable, especially uh, these days, uh, for politicians to suggest that uh, feelings. You know, if we just feel a certain way, uh, markets will obey our feelings, and uh, you know, we can just sort of divine things as we so wish, rather than really respecting the uh, the limits of markets. And so, as a as an engineer with her engineering background, I know uh, Lynn really approaches markets in a very systematic, uh, logical manner, and she uh, does a lot of great things, a lot of great thinking, and helps helps us understand the markets. So, I'm really glad to have her with me again. Before I say hello, I should tell you uh, you can follow her work if you go to Lynn Alden, L-Y-N Alden A-L-D-E-N, lynalden.com. She has a lot of really great free stuff. I want to talk to her today. Uh, The the title, uh, the subject that we're going to talk about today was from her recent article um, that uh, was titled Interest Rate Effects on Equities, Valuation Impacts, and then she just also wrote one on the impact of, uh, well, she called it the J- uh, Japanification, not what you think. And if there's time, I want to ask her about that as well. But, uh, Lynn, thank you so much for joining me again.
4: Hey, thanks for having me back.
1: It's really good to have you. Uh, and I want to ask you, I uh, want to focus a little bit on, well, mostly on your interest rate effects. and You know, because people sort of have had this feeling that the central banks have our backs as equity holders. We don't have to worry. I mean, every time there's any kind of a substantial decline in the equity markets, uh, incomes, the federal reserve, uh, pumping in huge amounts of money, lowering interest rates, interest rates decline, which makes stocks more, more attractive than they would be under a higher interest rate environment. You know, I'm a lot older than you. I, I, Remember, uh, Mrs. Taylor and I bought our first house. We had a seventeen and a half percent mortgage. Paul Volcker just raised interest rates because we had a big inflation problem in the nineteen seventies, and he was able to raise rates at that time, and he did. And it was very painful. We had the deepest. uh, We had the deepest uh, recession, or the deepest. I think the deepest recession was certainly a painful stock market uh, collapse at that time. Uh, But it set the stage for decades of lower interest rates and, and growth and so forth. So uh, so I kind of remember that time and I'm thinking back on it and wondering how much further can interest rates decline? Um, and, you know, there was a, a book I read called Beating the Dow with Bonds, Michael O'Higgins. In fact, I started following his methodology and, and found that you could make a lot more money in the bond market for quite a while, most of the time than in the stock market after that time, because, you know, obviously with rates falling uh, from the, those high levels, you could make a lot of money in just by owning treasuries. And um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, do you think that this game is about over? I mean, we're, we're almost at zero. We've, we've, uh, you know, we've ticked up a little bit on the 10-year. On the in fact, it's going up quite a bit recently. But what are your thoughts now? Can, is there still possibilities of making money after you take the, the impact of inflation away from the from the in the equation, is there still a possibility of making money by owning treasuries?
4: Uh, no, I think uh, a lot of them are, are facing issues uh, for the next several years. And so we're already starting to see, for example, uh, that the long end of the treasury curve uh, actually is bouncing pretty hard. Uh, you know, from the, the summer lows of 2020, uh, we've had a pretty uh, persistent rise in treasury yields. And in fact, the 10-year just hit 1.3% today. It's been a really mm-hmm. big jump. Uh, and so we're starting to see a rise there, although it's interesting because it's still below uh, the TIPS market, uh, their inflation expectations. Uh, and so there's potentially still uh, further to go up. Uh, and that could certainly put pressure on equity valuations, especially uh, the, 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 the higher valued growth tech names. Because as I discussed in that article, uh, you know, if, if you look at, say, highly valued growth stocks, uh, and you do discounted cash flow analysis on them. So kind of old school valuation method mm-hmm. uh, by by you know estimating their forward cash flows and then discounting them and summing them together to come up with a fair valuation. You know, what makes a, a growth stock different from a value stock is that a growth stock, more of the the cash flows are expected to be in the future. Uh, because you know right now they might be small or they might be medium-sized but you expect them to grow considerably in the future. And that's mm-hmm. where a lot of their, their results are going to be. Uh, whereas the value stock is cheaper, slower growing, and more of the cash flows are, are upfront
3: front.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: and so that makes the growth stocks particularly susceptible to, uh, you know, your interest rate that you use for the model. Right. You discount those, those you know, those years and potentially decades of cash flows. Mm-hmm. And so as you see the rates go back up, uh, that can put a lot of, uh, you know, pressure on some of these extremely highly valued software names and things like that, because we're often trading, in many cases at 40 times earnings, 50 times earnings, sometimes more. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, if we get higher yields, which, you know, lately we have been, uh, you know, so far the equity market shrugged that off. But I think it's getting somewhat close to, you know, kind of a decision point for equity markets where it's going to be harder to justify some of their extraordinarily high valuations uh, as yields keep rising.
1: Well, you know, I think probably – yeah, I, I guess that's why people don't use that sort of discounted cash flow, because the number is so small on, on the denominator. I mean, once you start, if you had you know 10% rates to discount future cash flows, big difference. Um, and and so, but most people, I'm I'm guessing most equity market players are saying, well, we don't really ever have to worry about rising rates again. The Fed has our back. They can always they can always pump more money into this system. Um, are they right in thinking that, to the extent they are?
4: Uh, to a certain extent. And so I think that you know the Fed is going to have a decision point uh, in a year or two ahead uh, because they do have tools to prevent the long end of the curve rising. Uh, and the last time they used those tools uh, was the 1940s uh, when we had a similar uh, fiscal uh, debt situation uh, and high inflation uh, due to all the deficits used to, to fight the war. And mm-hmm. so basically the Federal Reserve, you know, they have one of two options. One is they can keep doing what they're doing now, uh, which is, you know, they're they're holding the short end of the curve down near zero, uh, but they're letting the longer end of the curve uh, rise. Now, they're still buying some of the treasury, so they're kind of slowing it down a little bit, but they're mostly letting it letting it rise to a certain uh, extent. Uh, or if it reaches a problematic level, uh, they could go in uh, and, uh, you know, uh, peg the log end of the curve uh, with yield curve control by being willing to buy uh, any treasuries that, that try to go above that level. Uh, but the downside there is that they, you know, they pretty much fully give up their independence, uh, and so they've actually talked about that in their meeting minutes, where they, they, you know, they're they've put that option on the table. They've discussed it, uh, but they've also discussed uh, the risks, uh, uh, you know, doing it. And so that's not an option that they want to jump to, and it would probably take a lot of market turbulence to make them, you know, go forward with that because that's. That goes against a lot of the things that they want to do. And so I think that's, you know, it's a, a, a pretty decent end game scenario to be aware of. Uh, but I don't think it's a linear line, uh, you know, from here to there. I think that kind of like in, in late 20, uh, 2018 or late 2019, uh, you know, markets have to go through some degree of turbulence and find some issues before the Fed would be kind of forced uh, to, to, you know, intervene in that way.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think is causing uh, rates to tick up right now? The Fed is still pumping a huge amount
4: of money into the system, aren't they? Uh, they are, but, you know, if you look at uh, inflation expectations, uh, normally 10-year treasuries are above, uh, you know, the, the 10-year, the TIPS market's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. inflation expectations. And over the past year, they've been uh, considerably below uh, the inflation expectations, in large part because the Federal Reserve's been the biggest buyer of, of those treasuries. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, but they bought a ton of treasuries in early 2020, uh, and, you know, they bought, like, you know—, you know all, almost two trillion dollars worth of treasuries in a six-month period there in early 2020, <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, but s-
4: since then they've been buying at about $80 80 billion a month rate, which is about one trillion annualized. Which sounds like a lot until you take into account the fact that you know the, the amount of treasury issuance last year was five trillion, and if we if we include you know uh, a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus this year and you know along with a a trillion dollar kind of base deficit and you kind of add that up. You're potentially looking at another three, four, five trillion dollars in issuance this year, uh, and so that's actually a lot of treasuries for the private sector to absorb. And so, if the Fed continues on their current trajectory of purchases, uh, supply and demand characteristics should uh, point to uh, somewhat higher treasury yields. And so that's where we get some of these, you know, issues for uh, you know the equity market. And that's also to some extent what's been what's been uh, you know leading gold to consolidate over the past six months or so. Is that, uh, you know, because gold closely tracks real rates. And so mm-hmm. even though we've had rising inflation expectations, we've also had rising 10-year yields that have, that have kind of kept gold in that, in that somewhat kind of a mild downtrend, that kind of corrective, uh, you know, stance after a very strong 2018, 2019 and early 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I, when you talk about gold, I have to ask you about Bitcoin. Um, I was going to save that for later in our discussion, but what's driving Bitcoin?
4: Uh, so Bitcoin's going through its adoption cycle uh, and this, you know, Bitcoin kind of operates on its own unique uh, timing because every four years, the number of new Bitcoins uh, gets cut in half. So you know, Bitcoin generates a certain amount of new coins every 10 minutes uh, and every four years that's pre-programmed to get cut in half. And so that happened back in May 2020. And if you look at the historical chart, uh, Bitcoin does, you know, it generally does very re- well for the, you know, the 12 to 18 months after one of its uh, halving events. Uh, And so lately we've been, we've been in kind of the heart of that uh, bull market. Uh, And so it actually looks a lot like how it looked back in 2017 and also how it looked back in 2013. Uh, And so it's, it's going through that kind of four year cycle. Uh, And so by most metrics, if you look at on chain indicators uh, it's showing that it's, you know, it's, it's maybe halfway through that cycle. Uh, But of course, you know, history doesn't repeat perfectly. And so it still has to be monitored for risks. Uh, But overall, uh, you know, I think it's going to have corrections and things like that. But it's still somewhat on track uh, to do pretty well, I think, in 2021. Uh, But at this point, because it's risen so far, uh, people that have been investing, you know, since, you know, over a year ago, uh, you know, they might want to rebalance. They might want to, you know, kind of shift things into their other assets so they don't become overexposed to something that, you know, might have gone up 3x or 5x or more for them.
1: Yeah. I wasn't aware of this halving aspect. I was aware that Bitcoin had its limits on how many could be produced, but I wasn't aware. So you're saying every four years, uh, it gets, the, the quantity gets cut in half?
4: Yeah, that's how it reaches its 21 million cap. So, you know, the first four years of its oh. existence, uh, every 10 minutes, uh, about 50 Bitcoins were generated. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's from the mining activities to basically the miners verify Bitcoin transactions and their reward for doing so in addition to transaction fees is they get to create those newly generated Bitcoin. And so the number of Bitcoins started at like zero and then it, it just, it ramped up by 50 more Bitcoins every 10 minutes. But mm-hmm. then after four years, that was pre-programmed to reduce to 25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And then four years later, it went down to twelve and a half Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Uh, and after this latest halving, it's down to 6.25 bitcoins uh, every uh, uh, 10 minutes. Uh, and so, as long as demand remains relatively persistent, if new supply gets cut in half, mm-hmm. uh, you you tend to get a supply shock. And so, much like other commodities, that tends to result in a in a a, a bull market and a higher plateau uh, for the next Bitcoin price. And then, of course, momentum traders jump on board, and you get this big blow off top. And we we've seen that actually in every one of these these four year cycles where it kind of ends with this big blow off top and then a correction and a consolidation until the next halving happens again and kind of repeats the cycle you know four <laughs> years later.
1: <laughs> I guess you I guess that's something people should really be aware of then and paying close attention to, obviously. <laughs> I guess that's why people uh, are are really reading your stuff because you're you're keeping us aware of those of those kind of very important fundamentals that I wasn't aware of until now. Um, well, getting back to interest rates, do you, see, do you see any prospects at all of negative nominal rates in, in the United States?
4: Uh, so we're starting to see that you know, there might be a, an issue where there's kind of a, a shortage, actually, in some cases of T-bills, and uh-huh. because a lot of institutions need T-bills. And so they've actually been pushing those uh, pretty low, uh, even though the long end of the curve is, is going up. Mm-hmm. And so that, that might cause the Fed some technical issues. Uh, but overall, they don't, they don't really show signs of wanting to go negative. And that makes sense because there's really no evidence that negative yields are kind of beneficial to anyone. Uh, and so you know, Europe and Japan have done them to try to weaken their currency against the dollar. Uh, but overall, it, it's, not the, it's not a very good monetary policy. And so the, you know, the Federal Reserve seems aware of that. And so my base case is more like they're holding yields at zero – while letting inflation you know kind of do what it what it's going to do over the next couple years and they they've shown their willingness to let inflation run hot uh, because you know they Mm -hmm. they changed from you know kind of uh, using two percent inflation as their ceiling uh to you know targeting to actually you know purposely try to get it over that
1: well they they use uh i guess they use our government's numbers for inflation don't they they use uh two percent would be the cpi i suppose or
4: yeah, they use the PCE, which is uh, one <laughs> of their. It's it's similar to the the CPI, uh, and so yeah, based on their measurement, uh, they're trying to overshoot two percent. And so, you know, based on the way they measure it, they'd probably get concerned if that hit four percent. But when it's in that two to three percent range, they're actually kind of targeting that. Whereas, according to the way they've measured it, inflation's averaged maybe one point five to two percent over the past ten years.
1: So uh, they can always change that uh, basket of of whatever it is they use to measure that too, right? The government yes. does from yep. time to time hedonic pricing and uh, substitution, all kinds of tricks they they pull uh, over the years to um, to get the numbers they want. Uh, as you know, somebody's receiving my uh, my Social Security it is of some interest to me. Uh, I don't think uh, that my costs are going up only one and a half percent, but that's another issue. But uh, i wonder, do you see any prospects for inflation running so hot? That people start losing confidence in the Fed, or in the dollar, the dollar starts to get hurt, and we start. And the Fed could possibly lose control of inflation. I mean, I in the 70s, because I was a very young man then, I remember, uh, you know, first they they just pumped huge amounts of money that the Federal Reserve Chairman G. William Miller and Arthur Burns, and then, uh, and then you started having this massive amount of inflation. Of course, you had. Uh, the oil issues back then, OPEC and that sort of thing that came into play. But you, the government dumped huge – I mean, the, the Fed created huge amounts of money and for that time. It looks like nothing compared to the numbers they're putting out now. But uh, it seemed as though the Fed was kind of behind the curve and uh, interest rates would go up. They pumped more money in the system, but it was never – you know, it wasn't until Paul Volcker slammed on the brakes in 1980 – uh that they got control of things but it seemed to me that it ran that the fed lost control of of interest rates um you know and inflation do you do you see that possibility happening again
4: it's a possibility and there's a couple variables to watch and so one of the one of the tightest correlations is that uh the growth in the broad money supply uh is Mm -hmm. pretty correlated uh to uh consumer price inflation uh even the official way they measure it and so uh, if you look back in the, over the past century, there have been two inflationary decades in the United States. And so that's the 1940s uh, and the 1970s. And both of those saw a big growth in the money supply, and they both saw a growth in inflation. Now, lately, what we've been seeing is we saw a very sharp growth in the money supply. But the inflation level, by the way, they measured is still uh, somewhat on the low end. And that's somewhat been held down uh, by uh, lower rent prices in certain cities uh, oh. you know, because of issues related to the pandemic. And also because we've had this period of commodity oversupply, particularly energy. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, in many cases, commodities are the same price as they were, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like especially energy again. Uh, and so that that's really kind of kept a lid on kind of really broad uh, inflation. Uh, but I think going forward, if you were to continue to get this, this significant broad money supply growth uh, at the same time as if, you know, we start to run into to, to notably higher uh, commodity prices due to kind of where we are in the commodity cycle. And so if there's not a lot of new interest in, in, say, new drilling, uh, there's not a lot of, you know, maybe new money going into uh, CapEx for for energy projects. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of, uh, you know, new major copper discoveries, for example, in the past several years. And so if you start to get tight on some of these commodities in a way that we've really not seen over the past decade, combined with that broad money supply increase, that's when you can get, you know, actual kind of pretty much any way they measure it, inflation.
1: So interest rates would, would start to rise, or at least that would be if they were allowed to rise, uh, interest rates would start to rise, and the government now having such an enormous amount of debt uh, would have, would see interest expense just absolutely go nuts, it would just go exponential almost. If you started having really, I mean, what is our, uh, what is the government's debt now? It's, it's $27 trillion or I don't know, something like that, right?
4: Yeah, it's getting close to about 28 trillion, and so they'd have a choice to make. If if you go look at those two inflationary decades, in the 1970s, uh, you know, as you point out, they ra- they raised interest rates to quell inflation, and mm-hmm. the, the reason they were able to do that is because debt levels were very low, uh, both in the public sector and the private sector, as a percentage of GDP. On the other hand, if you look back in the 1940s uh, the, the public's, uh, debt was huge. That was the only other time we had, uh, you know, a hundred percent of GDP federal debt levels like we have now. Uh-huh. And so what the Fed did was, you know, inflation ran hot, uh, several points in that decade, and they still kept the short end and the long end of the curve pegged, uh, below that inflation rate. And so it's kind of a choice between, uh, you know, letting higher yields kind of, you know, result in a big fiscal problem for the government or, uh, you know, kind of killing the dollar because if they if they hold you know there's there's no free lunch so if they hold uh rates below the inflation rate the release valve is the strength of the currency and mm-hmm. if they let yields rise it can keep the currency uh you know from weakening too much uh but it starts causing a, a fiscal problem for the united states due to that uh, higher interest rate expense on their you know 28 trillion in debt probably 30 something by the end of this year
1: <laughs> it's mind-boggling for an old guy like me I'll tell you that I, I just I just noticed there was something Bank of America's chief investment officer uh, I think his last name is heartnet uh, has expressed concerns that real inflation as opposed to financial inflation uh, he's expressing those concerns he's suggesting that the velocity of people and velocity of money will be in the will be in the rise with vaccines and an increased mobility of people in other words as things get back to normal, assuming the vaccines are effective and the pandemic becomes less of a problem. He is see he sees, um, you know, he sees velocity of money, he sees things picking up and a real uh, prospect of inflation. So uh, I just, you know, just wondered if, if that's something you, you think we should be watching for. And if so, I suppose some of the, we should be owning
4: uh,
1: commodities and, and precious metals and that sort of thing, right?
4: Yeah, certainly. That's you know certainly it's something to be aware of because as you've seen the broad money supply go up, you know part of the reason that that inflation uh, was kept in check over the past year was because velocity fell down. And the interesting thing is about velocity, you don't even necessarily need high velocity for inflation. Like if you look at the '70s, velocity mm-hmm. wasn't really higher than the '60s. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. It's just
4: that it wasn't falling at the same time as broad money supply was going up very dramatically. Uh-huh. So if velocity if velocity stabilizes uh, or starts going up. At the same time as broad money supply is increasing, uh, then yeah, you could certainly get a, you know, somewhat of an inflation spike, especially because you've had scarcity, you know, kind of supply chain issues, uh, and lower uh, capital expenditures for some of these things. And so that's, you know, that's certainly a risk to be aware of. So I've been, mm-hmm. I've been bullish on commodities. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, also you can kind of play it, uh, you know, depending on, on you know, what kind of investor you are, you can, you can short the long end of the treasury curve, for example, you can bet on somewhat higher rates. Uh, so, for example, uh, Druckenmiller, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, Miller mm-hmm. gave a g- great interview the other day where he showed that he's kind of positioning for it regardless of what the Fed does. So he's short treasuries, but he's also long commodities. And so if the Fed uh, kind of intervenes and keeps rates from rising, but inflation is still present, then his commodities position would likely do very well. On the other hand, if if the Fed does let yields rise pretty far, that could keep somewhat of a lid on, on commodities by, you know, maintaining some dollar strength. But, it, you know, his, his short treasury's position would do very well. And so, uh, you know, he's kind of positioned for that. And I think that's a smart way to play it, is mm-hmm. to be, you know, positioned for you know, some degree of higher inflation, uh, but then be mindful of the fact that the Fed could intervene in a couple of different ways as it, as it relates to nominal interest rates.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense to me. I guess maybe in wrapping up here, Lynn, we're just about out of money. Uh, out of money. I'm not out of money. Out of time. I guess I think time is money. That's the old saying. Um just uh, I guess then what you're saying is if we have rising interest rates, then probably growth stocks are not so much and we want to go more for the traditional cash flow, cash flowing instruments, uh, cash flowing stocks probably, uh, as opposed to a, a low interest rate situation where uh, growth stocks are, are favored.
4: Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm favoring. I'm favoring some foreign equities, uh, some value equities. Uh, you know some commodity producers, things like that. Mm-hmm. Although I'm still kind of emphasizing quality. Uh, so ones with strong balance sheets, ones that actually have, you know, say low cost production, whatever the whatever the case may be for that particular mm-hmm. industry that we're talking about. Uh, but I think that that kind of value slash quality, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know mix, I think is pretty important going forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you do have a service in which you share more specific investment ideas that people very a very reasonably priced service, I might add. Uh, And it's lynnalden.com where folks can go for that. And also, uh, you can read her latest uh, article, Economic uh, Japanification, Not What You Think. And uh, I guess we don't have time to ask you about that, Lynn, which means that people need to go to your website to read about it. Um, Maybe we can have you on sometime soon to talk about that article as well. I want to thank you so much for being with us again and sharing your insights. Very valuable. Always great to have you with us. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime soon.
4: Yep, always happy to be here. Thanks.
1: All right, thank you. Well, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, as I mentioned, Bob Moriarty and Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me to talk about the amazing story of noble resources. Uh, and um, Bob will be talking about his uh, book that he's just written, What Became of the Crow? Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
0: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.